Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to State of the Empire, Consequence of Sound, Star Wars Speculation Podcast. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? What? I thought this is Willow Watch. You're right. Willow Watch! Cue the theme. That's right. This is an all Willow Watch episode of State of the Empire. Stinking Daikini. <laughs> you about to rob me of Willow Watch. <laughs> this has been a long time coming. Willow Watch this segment on State of the Empire, our Star Wars show, searching for signs that the classic 1980s fantasy film by George Lucas, Ron Howard, and Bob Dolman could live again some way, somehow, some shape or form, via Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm. Mm -hmm. And over the years, we've discovered that, yes, in fact, Willow was a part of the deal, and all kinds of crazy information about Willow. Enough information to let us know that this all runs very deep, and there's a whole story to be told about Willow. So uh, before we get carried away, hi, I'm Cap. Hey, I'm Doug. Hey, I'm Matt. Mardigan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. How long have you been waiting to pull that one out? <laughs> so, uh, like the last like 45 seconds. <laughs> Swift on your feet. You would clearly chew in a bunch of black root. <laughs> Put hair on your chest. So we're all huge fans of Willow. And like I said, we've been unearthing this whole intense amount of information yeah, over it, the years we've been doing State of the Empire. It's like we liked the movie and we always wish there was more of it in some shape or form. But it wasn't until we just started talking about it that we found out that there's hints that there was a whole lot more than just what we saw in the film. Yeah, there's a source book that's kind of like it's kind of like uh, bring your own role playing system, and here's all the stats and information you need. Yeah, it's- like if if you wanted to play in the world of Willow and you know Dungeons and Dragons really well, you can play Dungeons and Dragons in the world of Willow or any other system really, as long as you can adapt it to, to this. And but in this book is like a wealth of background information. It's written by this guy named Alan Varney, who we'll be talking to at some point. But we know that there's a lot of Willow out there. There was, in fact, almost an animated series done by the same people who did Droids and Ewoks, but it got canceled. There's been production images leaked from that. Mm -hmm. And there's also much maligned sequel books. Yeah. A story by George Lucas written by Chris Claremont, the famous X-Men writer, but they're very divergent from what we know and love as Willow. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole bunch of stories to be told. And in this episode and future episodes of all Willow Watch episodes (laughs) of State of the Empire, we hope to continue to uncover more information about Willow and how we think that there's a very real chance there could be a Willow 2 or some other kind of Willow thing out there in the world. Willow comics from Marvel, at the very least. Mm -hmm. Video games. In fact, Ron Howard was asked during a recent AMA on Reddit if he'd consider making a sequel to Willow, and he said this, Right now, the Lucasfilm team is entirely myopically focused on the Star Wars universe, so I think the immediate possibility of another Willow movie is probably not in the front burner. But Warwick Davis is such a cool guy, and he's continued to evolve as a talent. Man, he's Willow, and a grown-up Willow would be kind of cool. So I'd say, never say never. He went on to say, it was a movie that he'd love a second chance with, saying, I was fairly green, and I think today I could make it even more dynamic. I could make it cooler. I could make the funny stuff funnier. 
So while Never Say Never is far from confirmation, one of the key players is interested. And it would stand a reason that sooner or later, Disney's going to tap all the Lucasfilm properties in one way, shape, or form. Plus, even though there's just one movie, there's still a lot to pull from. See, from all the expanded media we've seen, the world of Willow is big. In fact, we believe there had to have been a hefty Willow story bible. Whether that came before or after the film, well, we'll have to ask around to find out. And that's one of the many reasons we're excited to say, in this episode, this inaugural all-Willow Watch episode of State of the Empire, we're talking with Bob Dolman, the guy who wrote Willow. I, I, where, where do we go from here? We go deeper, I guess. We go to Alan Varney. <laughs> we go to Chris Claremont. We find out, we get the whole story. But this then, is... then Uncle George, and then <laughs> Uncle Ron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the very least, we're going to hear some cool stories about how this got off the ground, like with the process of creating Willow. And to our knowledge, these stories haven't been told before. The Willow Blu-ray has a lot of information, but there's not a lot about the process of getting this off the ground as far as a world building and composition of yeah. all that. Because like, lots- well, with something like Star Wars, it's a given. You know, right. like when you make an Empire Strikes Back, it's like, oh, well, this is the sequel to Star Wars. You know, this is whatever. But with Willow, it was a whole new world. Granted, it was, you know, from Lucasfilm, but I never really heard the story of where did it really come from? How did it find its footing? And how did it evolve from pre-production to production to yeah. finally the, the finished product? And that's the story that we hope to be uncovering today. Honestly, if it's ever existed elsewhere, it may be in long forgotten interviews in old magazines and so on but we've we've dug up a few of those and still haven't found much mm-hmm. so if you're a willow fan it's our hope that this is going to be a, a landmark episode for you and we're going to get some real hard truths about willow mm-hmm. here here so without further ado we're going to jump right into it let's talk to bob dolman hi bob it is such a pleasure to finally be talking with you this is going to be amazing it only took us about five years <laughs> I'm glad we got together. I'm in a studio. I'm in remote control productions, which is Hans Zimmer's music factory, really. And my son, Jack, who was about uh, seven or eight years old when Willow came out, he's in the next room and he's a music editor and he's working on uh, the new Captain America. So there's a lot happening here. Wow. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's I, know, I, just, I just got to watch a couple of top secret scenes and I, I was sworn to secrecy. You're just teasing us then. (laughs) Why? (laughs) It's pretty cool. Well, Bob, first and foremost, looking at the history of Willow and everything, you went directly from SCTV to writing for a George Lucas production. How did that happen? Well, it was a lot of good luck, but I had worked during SCTV. I did a television pilot called Little Shots that I wrote and Ron Howard directed. And we had a great time. And even though it didn't go to series or anything, it left us with a good relationship. And so we were trying to find other projects to work on. And in fact, when Willow came along, Ron and I had already started to work on the screenplay for Far and Away. But then Lucas came along and asked Ron if he wanted to direct Willow, which was something he'd been thinking about for a while. And could he recommend any writers? And Ron recommended me. And suddenly I was working on a movie that was going to go. And it really happened quickly and with a lot of luck. And he sent some scripts. I worked on a show called WKRP in Cincinnati, and he sent a script of that little half-hour show to George. And based on those few things, that recommendation and the script, and then finally a meeting with three of us, I got the job. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was stunned because I thought, oh, I'm just going to be doing TV. And I was up in Toronto at the time that uh, Ron called me about Willow. And I said to him, I don't think so, Ron. It doesn't sound like something I'm going to be very good at. 
And then I hung up the phone, went back to some TV thing I was working on, and he called back and said, uh, I think you might want to reconsider that, Bob, and just come <laughs> down and have a meeting. <laughs> so I said, okay. So then I went down to L.A. and met with him and George, and we hit it off really well. That was one of the great things about Willow, that George and Ron and I seemed to really have a funny, weird, quirky sense of humor when we were together that we liked from the get-go, and that ended up on the screen, I think, just the strangeness of the combination of the three of us. Yeah, because Willow has its own voice. When comparing it to the other Lucas productions, you know, they all have action, adventure, they all have sort of a humor to them, but Willow has kind more. of a humor and a heart to it that I still haven't seen in more recent fantasy films, like including Lord of the Rings. Yeah. There's something different to it that it's, it's difficult for me to place, but there's a sensibility about it that it's not Star Wars and it's not typical fantasy. That's a good observation, and I think if I brought anything to it, it in terms of the humor, it was that uh, at that time I had been working on SCTV for four years, and I was so used to writing sketches and comical characters that we would brainstorm, the three of us, and I would always make the scenes more ridiculous <laughs> in our brainstorming in order to find more possibilities for humor. It's just something I was trained to do is to take a situation you're writing and then just make it more ridiculous and then you can scrape it back to where you want it. So we would often be writing and I'd say, well, what if this was a Monty Python sketch <laughs> instead of, a, you know, and then instead of Willow and Mad Mardigan and the baby going through the woods, what if it was just modern New York? And then we'd change the characters into other kinds of characters and just make it more of a slapstick comedy and then come back and we'd put, and I think that really made its way into it, especially with the brownies and some of the broad humor that's in that movie. And I even think sometimes it's too broad and doesn't work, but that also gives <laughs> Willow its personality, just like you said. That all makes a lot of sense. There's so much character. So many genre films get hung up on the genre and Willow put characters first. Mm -hmm. So when you guys were hanging out in, in these writers' rooms, like, what was Willow like when you first got into the project? What did George and Ron have already put together? Well, Ron really didn't have anything to do with the very beginning of it. It was all George Lucas's idea. And what had happened with it has an interesting backstory that uh, when George was doing Star Wars, the very first Star Wars, he originally wanted Luke Skywalker to be played by a little person. And the studio said, no way. We're not going to do a movie and have somebody who's dwarfed play the lead character in this movie. So we're going to cast someone else. And George accepted that, but he always wanted to do a movie in which the hero was smaller than everybody else and would be played by what they were calling back then a little person. Years went by, and one of the problems he had was he still wanted to do a movie of that nature, but he couldn't find an actor who could play the part, play the lead. And then when he did the Ewoks, he found Warwick Davis, who was just a, a kid then, really. George thought he was a strong enough actor to play the lead, and he always had this idea, but he didn't quite know what it was. And when he decided to do it, he put together the story in his head. And it was just in his head when we first met he pitched the story to me and Ron. Neither one of us really knew what it was. We just knew it was going to be a fantasy adventure, and Ron thought it was going to be sort of like Lord of the Rings, but he wasn't sure because George hadn't really told him the story. So we'd met in Ron's offices at Fox, and George told us, 
a very, very thin version of the story. It just sounded wild to me, but it didn't have much of a plot at that point, the way I remember it. It had more of a feeling. Then by the next time we met, because then it was a matter of negotiating contracts and everything. So the next time we met, George couldn't come to the meeting until he had written down a very short synopsis of the story because he wanted to have the rights to the story, what they call the story by credit. Hmm. He wanted that going in. And rightly so, it was his story. But also that's part of how George operates. The story by credit gives you all the rights to the marketing and merchandising and things like that. So when we met the second time, the story had been written out by George. Remember, it was three pages, single spaced. And it pretty much told the story of Willow and certainly was enough for us to start meeting. Then we began to expand it from that. And to answer your question, the character just seemed like a very willful, good person. And the name Willow Ufgood was, George said, was he was thinking of the will of God. And this would be a very virtuous, good character. I remember thinking, I'm going to get bored with the character if that's all he is. <laughs> and I began to find little quirks in the character. And I said to George at one point, I'm going to, you know, whatever, when I get interviewed about Willow, which isn't very often, I start getting long-winded, so just cut me off if no, you want. We, we've been waiting, waiting for this. Please, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The thing is, the memories I have of working on this project are so great. They really are. Maybe one of the greatest creative times I ever had. So when we met, I remember saying to George, I want to do this with the character. I want to do this with the character. And he said, oh, that sounds great. That sounds great. Do that. I said, George, why did you hire me to do this? I'm not really this kind of a writer. And he said, well, you are, though. The very fact that you would ask these questions. He said, I read this WKRP script, and I thought, this guy knows how a character ties its shoelace. He said, that's the kind of thing that makes a huge movie work, is the little details like that. He said, you take care of the little details of the characters and leave the dragons to me. That's what he said. I said, good, because the dragons I didn't understand at all. So I said, you go do the dragons. So we sort of divided things up that way. I'd say, what's a dragon look like? And then he would tell me. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So you said that he basically pitched a a really short version of the story that they had so far. Did he ever like go into detail about like what the world looked like and other backstory? Because in looking up Willow things, we keep stumbling upon these hints that there may be like a thick story Bible out there somewhere of just chock full of information on what the whole world is like with concept art and everything, stuff that isn't even close to what made it into the final film. Well, I think that a lot of that stuff came after the movie, actually, because they did some things up there that didn't interest me too much, but they got Willow games going and, like, novelizing it, and the Willow world expanded out a little bit after the movie, and that's where, if there was any Bible, it would come after that. Mm. What we had going into the movie was that outline that George wrote, but then there was a long period of time where I did thinking about the movie and researching. I was living in Los Angeles, and George had me come up to Skywalker Ranch, and he put me in an office there, and they had, back then, it was before Google, they had a library, and he had all sorts of people working in the library, and I would say, well, what kind of clothes were people wearing in, and I just think, like, the 6th century? I didn't know. And (laughs) they'd come up with pictures and clothes and pictures of tools, And I began to shape what was an imaginary world. And it's not specific to any 
historical time, but what came out of it was a world that was, in my mind anyway, pre-patriarchal. That is, it wasn't run by men, it was run by women. I wanted to get away from the Darth Vader thing. And like the first version that George wrote, the real bad person who became Bavmorda, the queen, was actually a man, was a king. And I asked to change that because it felt like Darth Vader. And some of the things did feel like Star Wars, and I didn't want to repeat them if we could help it. But I also thought that it would be interesting if queens were fighting over a princess in a world where men were trying to gain power. That's what Willow is about when you think of it. You know, Mad Mardigan and Willow are these guys who are trying to be swordsmen and trying to be magicians in a world that's run by an evil queen and a good queen that's been put under a spell and a future princess. And that part of it came from those early days where I was up at Skywalker researching and thinking that stuff through. And my office was right next to George's. And he was doing his thing in his office, whatever that was. And I would be able to just knock on his door and say, what do you think of this? And he always had time for that. Willow was at the top of his list of things to do. So he was always excited when I knocked on the door because then I would pitch him an idea like, he would really think about it. And often he loved the ideas that I was coming up with. So we had a good working relationship there. And then we'd also sometimes meet with Ron Howard. He would come up. We had many, many sessions, the three of us together, just jamming it in a television writing way. That was also something I was used to, was getting in the room with other people and bouncing ideas all over the place. And so I wrote every draft of it, but it was always after all these wonderful periods of research and brainstorming and collaboration really pleasant. I mean, that's just as fun as it gets, jamming with <laughs> really interesting, talented people and then being able to write a script out of it. Yeah, that, that sounds like an incredible setup. Like so many resources at your fingertips and wow. How long was the script writing process? Well, given all that we did, I think it went pretty quickly. I believe that I wrote seven or eight drafts of the script over about a year and a little more. And that includes revisions when the movie was already in pre-production. There were some very, very important drafts of the script that happened early on, after I'd done a lot of that research and uh, thinking about it. I got it into an outline form for myself. I never gave it to George or Ron. I just had it for myself. And I thought, maybe I'll just write a rough draft of this and see what comes of it. And I was in L.A. working on it that time, and I wrote the draft. And I can't remember how long it took me to write it, but it didn't seem like it took too long because I wanted to get feedback from them. So I wrote a draft, and then I sent it up to them. And I remember thinking, well, this isn't the greatest draft. And I also hadn't really written a movie before. But these guys will have lots of feedback. That's a clue to the process that makes the situation much different than it is today and certainly makes it, I would say, unique to George Lucas. I was completely trusted. So I didn't feel like if I screwed up the script, I would lose my job. I never felt that for one second. I, was, I felt like we are here to make this movie. The creative process goes draft by draft. There'll be lots of discussion between the drafts. You'll be paid for every draft you write. And you have a job. You're hired. I mean, I can imagine in a studio situation, someone might have read the draft and say, well, let's bring in another writer. But that never was the case in Willow. It was always, okay, we've got something. Let's talk about it. And we had many, many notes came after that first draft. We would usually get together, Ron, George, and I, for quite a few days, like maybe 10 days of brainstorming. Go through every page, every bit of it. And I would just write in the margins and fill it up. And then 
I'd go back and do another draft. Well, the first draft was, I think, 105 pages or something, pretty short. And then the second draft, there was so much material that had come from the brainstorming that I just wrote down everything I could think of. And that draft was 200 pages. It was so long that I made two copies of it for George and Ron, and I stuck a pair of scissors on the front cover. We called it the scissors <laughs> draft because it had... <laughs> <laughs> and they were a little nervous because it was this big, long script. But it had so much in it that we went through it and we did the whole process again. And then I was able to get the script to a manageable length and it started to resemble the movie that it eventually came. So those first two, probably three drafts were the real important ones. And after that, it became about honing it and making production considerations. You know what I mean? It's like we, we then we'd be thinking, OK, it's going to be shot in England and it's going to require training dogs and sword fights and any of that had to be considered when I was rewriting the script. Well, early on there, before those considerations, what did the story look like? Were there any major differences in uh, characters or locales or plot points? The main plot of Willow always adhered to that first three-page outline that George wrote. He was clear in his head that Willow would have to leave his world after finding this baby in the river. That was the starting point that never changed. And then going off into the world, we didn't quite know what the world was about, but George had brought one great thing to it at that point. I mean, he brought many things, but one thing I think just was fantastic was the idea of Mad Mardigan as a character hanging at the crossroads. When that was part of the story, I thought, this can't miss. It's such a great image. I just love it so much. And the character is so wonderful. And I really enjoyed developing the character of Mad Mardigan. Now, I would have to go back and remember, but I don't remember there being much of a Sorsha character. I probably brought that to it. And the love story, there's a guy named Eric the Bear, who is the friend and foe of Mad Mardigan, who leads the troops and who gets killed in the final battle. Yeah. And that character didn't really exist, except there was the idea of an army that was going to fight then the evil king that became the evil queen. And then I don't know how we got going on this idea of Tirazlin, but that became a big discussion. That we would create this castle that would be under a spell. And then all that developed into the dragon and so on. Those were the things that we had to fill in as we went, because really the middle part of that original outline, I don't have it anymore. And I, I can't remember. It's a long recall for me, but what I do remember is it was really about, you know, Willow finds a baby and then goes out into a world that is at war and takes the baby back to its intended place to be the future queen. That was the bare bones of it. And the obstacles were the evil king and the evil army and that both sides, good and evil, were fighting for possession of this princess because she would be the future of either good or, if destroyed, evil. None of that changed, and it was really great that it didn't change. I remember at one time I got a little panicky and thought the story wasn't working, and I said to George, I think Mad Mardigan is a better character than Willow. He seems <laughs> to be stronger and more interesting. What if he was the hero? And <laughs> George is really stubborn, got a great, great stubborn side to him, said, what are you talking about? Willow's the hero. <laughs> I know, but I don't know. I find that Willow's not as, like, I'm, I'm having more fun writing Mad Mardigan. Stick to the plan. 
it wasn't, uh, I didn't really have an option there. I just went back to the drawing board. But <laughs> I think it probably at one point in my struggle to write it, I was thinking, oh, if this started with Mad Mardigan getting caught and put in the, you know, I saw a whole story of Mad Mardigan. And I began to write that. And even though it didn't end up in the movie for the reasons I just said, all this stuff goes into the writing of something. And it just deepened my understanding of, the, of Mad Mardigan. So it paid off. I like, for instance, I discovered that Mad Mardigan, even though he was this rogue who'd been locked up for something he'd done, we never really know why, and that he was a womanizer and everything else, that he had a soft side of him that was a feminine side. And I liked that about him because Willow was still obviously this caring person, but to inject a little bit of that into it and have Mad Mardigan fall in love with the baby, that was, I believe that's something I brought and became very important to the rest of the story because we had to get him on board. And when he goes off with the baby, you don't trust him. But later on, he comes to love the baby. So then we can trust him. <laughs> I can't believe I'm telling the story of Willow to you guys like you don't know it. You know <laughs> no, it's it like, <laughs> but hearing it from the creative standpoint, like, yeah. like how you came to the decision, that's the interesting part. And you're right. The love, the honest love of this warrior, like his heart softened by this baby. And, and probably he probably hasn't had a child in his arms like maybe ever. Yeah. yeah. And and the, the Grinch's heart grows, you know, several sizes at that point. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, you're fascinated with Mad Mardigan because I feel like there was so much more to his backstory than we were getting on screen. I mean, like, of course, how did he get into the cage? What's his real backstory with Eric? They clearly know each other, but they dislike each other, but they actually like each other. And even when you're talking about him having this mothering side to him, he even has these throwaway lines like, my mother raised me on Blackroot. So he had a mother. You know, it's like he wasn't like just born to be a soldier or something. There's more stuff going on there. You're hitting on something that's really important to the evolution of Willow. And I have to give George all the credit for this next part is that after our first story meeting, George is very systematic. Like he said, let's think of 45 scenes. I'm not kidding. That's what he said. <laughs> let's, think of, let's think of 45 scenes. I said, why 45? He said, well, it's three acts. So 15 scenes per act. And I said, but the second act longer, isn't it? He said, uh, I can only afford 45 scenes. Let's just say that. <laughs> And I said, okay. And he says, if the middle of the movie's longer, then the 15 scenes can be longer. That's how he talked. I, I was blown away because I come from more of a start with the character. He was starting with plot. And so he said, let's just think of 45 scenes that the three of us think are cool. And I said, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we're sitting in a room. He takes a yellow legal size pad and he writes 1 to 15, <laughs> 1 to 15, 1 to 15. He says, okay. What kind of scenes do you want? That's so unorthodox, I can't tell you. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, this is so random. He said, so what? We're making the movie. Let's make sure the scenes are scenes we would like to watch. And then we thought, but who would the audience be? And that led to a discussion where we thought, okay, if we had to pick one person that's going to enjoy this movie, who would it be? And we all agreed that it would be a 12-year-old boy. And so... We thought if we can satisfy 12-year-old boys, the movie would be, in our mind, successful, which in the end made it a success because 12-year-old boys loved it. But we didn't really think beyond that. We didn't think, let's try to get an older audience. Let's try to get girls. Let's try to... We just wanted to make sure that when we were 12, we would have liked this movie. So then we went back to the 45 scene. So we're 12 years old. What would we like to see in a movie? <laughs> well, then we dove in with things like, you know, I said, well, I'd like to see a scene in the snow. 
with them going down a sled. All right, let's put it in. That sounds like something maybe in Act 3. And so we'd stick it in. It was just like that, right? And it was so random. And we had things that didn't end up in the movie. I also wanted a river scene. I thought, let's do a river with rapids. Because, I mean, these are all things I liked in adventure movies. Love it when people go down the rapids. And some of these things didn't make it into the movie, though I think the rapids made it into the first draft. So we had all these things. And, of course, they weren't in the right order. And I, part of my job was to go back and see if these, what I thought were totally random ideas, would fit into the movie. But they did. A lot of them did. And we'd come up with things like, I want to see a castle with a dragon. Oh, yeah, we got to have that. <laughs> and we need some cool sword fights. Like, we need a sword fight. And um, I don't know, we'd come up with something like that. And then all three of us jumping in like 12-year-old boys. Oh, I want this. I want that. We filled up the 45 scenes. And I went home with that yellow piece of paper thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to write this movie? This is really <laughs> insane. And then also, just before I left that, George said, oh, you got to watch some movies before you start doing anything. And then he got me screening rooms. It wasn't so easy to watch movies back then. I mean, it was, I think, probably VHS or something. But he didn't want me watching on VHS. He wanted me to watch actual movies that were the prince of movies. George could do anything he wanted, so he'd get me, we'd be <laughs> down at Warner Brothers, and he'd say, okay, Warner Brothers, they got Seven Samurai. I'm going to have you watch Seven Samurai. You've got to watch a lot of samurai movies. I'd go in, and Ron would go with me, and two of us would just sit there and watch Yojimbo and Seven Samurai and all these movies. And it really worked because, for instance, there's a scene in Seven Samurai, which I watched over and over again. And I knew the movie, but it became a very important movie to me when I was writing Willow. And there's a scene where that one um, samurai, the one that they think is crazy and ends up being so heartbreaking, in the middle of the battle, there's a mother carrying a baby and she gets shot with an arrow and she falls to her knees and the baby, she's about to drop the baby and this guy comes in and grabs the baby out of her arms and saves it. He's crazed and he's crying and the guy's just saying, what's the matter? What's the matter? You, you know, you got to get away from these. And he says, this happened to me. This happened to me. And you think it's an impossible coincidence, but it's so powerful that it happened to him. Well, that, that became a direct, that was an idea I just stole. So then, of course, it turned into my mother fed me black root, totally different. But <laughs> still, in one little detail, you get the whole dimension to it. Just like you guys said, we found out he had a mother. So things like that. And he also had us watch the John Ford movie called Three Godfathers. And that was a movie about, you know, John Wayne and couple other guys going through the desert for some reason that I'd forgotten with a baby. They get somehow they're stuck with the baby, these three guys, and they have to cross the Death Valley and keep the baby alive. Well, that was a real influence on it. And just watching these big lugs who didn't know anything about a baby having to carry it across the desert. And <laughs> as you're asking me these questions, I just thinking about all the influences. I was just going through it at the time. I wasn't really so conscious of it as I am now in retrospect. These are certainly influences that impacted the creation of the movie. So many different things came into it. It sounds like uh, you had a lot of freedom in certain respects, but in other respects, George would mandate certain things like, okay, well, it has to be about Willow, it has to be about the baby, it has to be going into a special world where there's some kind of war. Were there any things that he was really against you changing? Because you went ahead and changed this king to a queen, Bathmorda, with the whole adding Tira's lean and adding Sorcerer and adding all these other little things. He didn't seem to, to really mind you adding those things or changing those things, but 
was there any rules that were set down? Like, no matter what happens, this must be this way, or you cannot go in this direction. What you're describing there is really important to the creative process, that there be some restraint in order to allow for freedom. If you have total freedom, you usually end up getting into chaos and it's hard to get out. So we had guidelines and George provided those with the original story and then stuck to the story. But you're right. He let me have a lot of leeway in my invention because that was my job. I was the writer. I was the one that was supposed to come up with stuff like that until it was time for them to come up with other things in the production. So he deferred to a lot of my choices, but we would talk through everything. And if we felt that something wasn't working, we'd just think, well, could we come up with something better? So a lot of things shifted along the way. In that long draft, the scissors draft, I put in a lot of things that were kind of domestic, like love scenes. And I like writing that kind of thing. And some of it really served the movie and some of it had to be taken out because it was just too much of it. And we wanted to keep the adventure and the conflict going. I liked, though, the scenes where Willow, Mad Marty, and the baby were just talking. I really enjoyed writing those. So I would have a lot of freedom, and I believe I came up with the idea of Sorsha. When I say believe, it's because we'd be in these story sessions. It's hard for me to remember who came up with what, and I was just trying to get it written, and I didn't care. I just wanted the best ideas. But I think I came up with the idea that Sorsha was the daughter of Bab Morda and that she would turn. You know, when you think about it, Mad Mardigan falls in love with the baby, and he turns. She falls in love with Mad Mardigan through the magic potion, and she turns. And so there's this theme going through the movie of love being something that can actually turn a person away from bad choices to good choices. So it has a motivating force in it that runs through the movie. And I really like that. I like that it begins with a baby being born and the mother's love, even though it's taken away. The nanny that runs off and is killed cares so much for the baby that she sacrifices her life. Remember when the baby shows up in Willow's village, what he keeps saying to the kids, you don't fall in love with that baby. Yeah. And it's kind of the theme. It's the theme of the movie. If you fall in love, all your plans are going to go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, because then once his wife sees it, then it's all over. And, yeah, Kaya is instantly smitten. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's a funny. I'll tell you a little story about Kaya. Let's, yeah, Kaya, let and, rip. Uh, Kaya and Willow, the two actors, we're having a little trouble with the chemistry between them, I guess. And those scenes had to be done rather quickly. So much movie ahead. And Ron came out after shooting. You remember there's a scene where I think Willow comes back from the village and she's got the baby and she's walking back and forth. And it's after the death dogs have attacked the village. And he goes back thinking, oh, my God, the death dogs are looking for the baby. And then Kaya's there with the baby. And he says, OK, we got to get rid of this baby. And she just looks at him and she laughs at him. This goes, Willow. Like, chill. And that was shot in these little huts that we had in a studio in England. And the cameras had to pretty much be put on the ground and everything was low down and you couldn't go in when they were shooting. There was no room. Ron came out and said, well, I feel like we didn't quite get that scene. And I think the reason is that Kaya and Willow, there's something between them that's not happening. But Kaya really likes you, Bob. So would you go in? I just want to shoot her side of it. But you play Willow. And I said, okay. I'm six feet tall. I said, how am I going to get in there? And he said, well, you got to crawl in, and I'll put you right behind the camera, and then we'll have the eyeline figured out, and just you do Willow's line. So 
<laughs> I crawl into this little hole, <laughs> and there's a camera in there, and she's what a baby, probably not the real baby, but something in her arm. And we have to do the scene over again. And we don't tell Warwick because he might be offended that, you know, the screenwriter's doing his part. <laughs> yeah, you taking up the acting for him. <laughs> so all I knew is that Kai and I had really got along well in the rehearsal period. And so I, I liked her sense of humor. So I was doing Willow's lines, but I was making really stupid faces at her when I was doing this. Because right? <laughs> so, I thought if she just laughs once, then she wins the scene. But if she comes off grumpy, then the scene's no good. And that's what the problem Ron had was she looked grumpy. So I just made her laugh. And there's this great moment where she goes, Willow, she sort of breaks up. And that's the piece they use. And that was my big acting moment. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. That's a good segue going into like the actual production of it. Clearly, you were there on the set. Was there a lot of rewriting that had to be done like while you were shooting? Well, the movie was shot in England and in New Zealand. And the brownies and the special effects things were done in California at ILM. We rehearsed in England, outside of London, at a studio where there was also a little forest. The sets were built in that little forest for Willow's Village. Other things were done in the studio over there in England. But we wanted the snow scene. Remember the 15 scenes? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. wanted snow. <laughs> yeah. So we got to have snow. By that point, snow had made it through seven drafts. There was no going back. <laughs> and... Uh, for some reason, the schedule had been delayed and we were going to shoot in Switzerland, but then it started to get too late in the year and we realized the snow would be gone. This was quite elaborate. They decided we'll shoot the snow scenes in New Zealand. And the New Zealand part of it, I didn't go on. I was just there for the England part. The New Zealand part was, it was elaborate. I mean, this was way before Lord of the Rings, way before New Zealand was a film center. They didn't have any film stuff down there. And when the decision was made to send everybody to New Zealand and shoot down there, they had to put cameras and equipment on a big freighter and send it to New Zealand ahead. I think it took a few months for that thing to get down there and drop off all the equipment. While I was still doing last rewrites, they'd already figured that out and sent stuff down there by boat so that when they shot the New Zealand part of the movie, they had cameras and lights and things that they wouldn't have had down there. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> so I'm more familiar with what happened in England, and my part there was mostly to work with the actors in the rehearsal period because there was a long rehearsal because all the little people in the movie were not trained actors. I was there to help the a actors, including Willow himself, who had done some acting, with dialogue and with rewriting the dialogue if it wasn't working. And then we had... At that time, Val Kilmer showed up and we had proper rehearsals. And when that starts happening, actors are doing lines and they have questions and dialogue starts to change a little bit. So I was on hand for those. But once all that was done, the script was pretty much locked. And then it was shot, I think, pretty much as it was written. That's a good Ron Howard question, really. I mean, I looked at the movie when it's finished and thought, they really stuck to the script. But it was more fluid when we were in rehearsal, which is, when it should be in prep yeah. so that rehearsal period. And I was also there when we started to shoot in England because we were still working mostly with the little people and they were, this is a kind of a long story. You ready for it? Oh yeah. <laughs> Let's do <Yeah>. it. <laughs> All right. So Lucas said, I don't want anybody taller than three foot six in Willow's world. Size is very important in this movie. There's these different dimensions of people. And so there's brownies that are little and think that the Nelwins are big. And there's Nelwins that think 
you know, the, the daikinis are big and everybody's got, it's all relative. And that was important to the telling of the story. And it was important in the script too. I liked playing with that. We had this village built in the woods, as I said, and all the little people were living in a hotel together. Well, these people, because of Georgia's three foot six rule, that's really small. And in order to get people to fill the village and keep that height requirement, they had to go outside of England. And so they put ads in newspapers all over Europe. And all those people that came to play extra parts in the village scenes had come from Spain, Brussels, Poland, all over the place. You know, people had to translate. It was quite chaotic. And we fell behind quite early in the shooting. And George said, okay, we got to make up time. Bob, you're going to have a crew and you're going to shoot some of this stuff. And I'm going to shoot some of this stuff. And then Ron can just shoot the willow scenes, the main scenes. I said, I never directed the scene. He says, well, you just tell the guys what you want them to do. It's not so hard. <laughs> so he says, like, just shoot stuff in the village. Like a goose, that would be great. My goose shot, by the way, is in the movie. <laughs> and, and so I had a little crew, like three guys, and we went around and we just were picking up pieces. And I staged the um, tug-of-war scene where they fall in the mud, yeah. just two seconds long. But that was something I got, that was my job. Let's do a tug-of-war scene. So put them in the mud and one, two, three, whatever. <laughs> I said, I'm supposed to call action. And most of the guys in the tug-of-war scene were French. So I said, oh, shit, I got to remember my French from high school. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm a, I'll say go. Well, for some reason, I said, tue, which in French means kill. <laughs> 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 and so they all just attacked and all the money. It actually it worked out kind of well, but it was so vicious. <laughs> they all just started attacking. <laughs> oh, no, I know what it was. The French word is pull is tire which means pull, because they were pulling on it. And I said, Tire, I'll tell them just to pull. But instead, I, they heard, I said, Tue, <laughs> which meant kill. So we, we divided up, and we got a lot, of the, a lot of the stuff there. But as I said, all these people came from different places. And one day, I was in the um, production office, and the guy who was taller than three foot six, and that worked for the story, was the actor playing Burgle Cut, who's the um, mean guy in the village. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And so... Bergelkite, a really nice guy, was from um, Wales or Sussex or some part of southern England. And I was in the office getting a coffee or something, and he said, Oh, Mr. Dolman, I'd really like to thank you for writing this script. I said, Oh, you're welcome. Are you having a good time? Oh, I'm having a great time. Do you know, I'm from a little village in wherever, and I'm the only person of small stature in that village. And until this movie, I'd never met another person of small stature in my life. And I suddenly saw that all these people who were outcasts and maybe even freaks in their own world were in a community of all their kind, and they were all staying in this hotel together. That really touched me. Well, then, a day or two later, we're shooting in this forest, and when I was taking the English, I always like to have tea breaks, lunch breaks. So have a tea break. And all of a sudden, I hear one of the crew guys saying, okay, back to work, everybody. Where, where, are, where is everybody? Where is everybody? Where do they all go? And then another guy comes running out of the, bush, out of the woods and says, they're all fucking in the bushes. <laughs> and, and it was true. Like, they were all falling in love. 
So there's this whole movie that you could tell if you wanted to about that, because at night they were staying at all in the same hotel. The guy running the hotel apparently called the production and said, it's just mayhem over here. So they just won't stop partying <laughs> because they'd all found one another. And it's actually a beautiful, I'm making fun of it because that's what happened. But it turned out to be a very beautiful story because some of those people ended up getting married. They wound up being friends for life. When they left, they couldn't bear the fact that the movie was finished because this was the greatest time they'd ever had and they were going back to their different countries. It's really <laughs> an incredible love story. Doesn't it still amazing. hold the record for the most number of little people in, in a single film? Maybe, I don't know. That sounds right. There were a lot. We really populated that village. Yeah, I it's mean, like it's it's either between you or Wizard of Oz, really. I mean, I can't. I, I, well, I know Willow did hold the the record at the time, so someone would have to have beaten it since then, which yeah. seems unlikely. Yeah, maybe it still holds that record. You guys are like seriously unlikely matchmakers. That's amazing. That's right. We were matchmakers, and, <laughs> and then there was the running joke about the dust of Broken Heart and how. Val Kilmer and Joanne Wally, who played Sorsha, they ended up falling in love on the movie and getting married. They always say to me later, eventually they divorced, they stopped saying it then, but they said, <laughs> oh, Bob, thank you for the dust of broken heart. It got us together. We found love in Willow. So there was this magical feeling. I'm not sure that all movies don't have that, actually, but it seemed a little special because of the little people. When people talk about Willow and facts about Willow, the Nellan village and the population always comes up, but I've never he before heard how far and wide the process of finding them was and certainly not about the amazing and beautiful ramifications of getting all those people together. Yeah, it's so nice to see that that was part of Willow and uh, as much as there are so many incredible things going on in film now with CGI and all that, back then you had to go to extra lengths to make scenes happen and the very ambitious idea that George Lucas had of let's find people all over Europe and get them up here. That's an enormous task for some casting people. Yeah, it and, really is. Uh, Especially right? before the internet. <laughs> get them all and get them all negotiated their deal and bring them all the way to England and get through English customs and put them in a hotel and oh man, get them costumed. It's the steps that go into something like that. You watch the movie and say, oh, this is cool, but you can't believe <laughs> the steps that have to be taken to make all that work. So impressive. In regards to characters, you mentioned how much you loved writing Mad Mardigan. And then yeah. Doug, Doug brought up how you know so much about him without there not being particularly much on film. But there's always the question of how he got in the crow's cage and all that. And the, the novelization and the source book offer two versions of the same story. And because those two like post-film pieces of literature had similar adaptations of different backstories... I was curious how much of that came from you, like how much of your early drafts with more Mad Mardigan may have bled over. Do you have like a definitive memory of providing more on Mad Mardigan at some point during the production process? I have forgotten what story I had made up, except it had to do with him being a thief. And that led to Eric saying, you know, you can rot in that cage, you know, you're a thief. But what interested me more than him being a thief was that he was self-serving and had apathy in terms of good, bad, what was the war that was being fought. He didn't care about it mm. at first. He just cared about getting out of that cage. He was manipulative. And I remember thinking, well, he's probably been caught for stealing things. And there's probably been a little run of thievery that's gone into that. But that 
aspect of it didn't interest me as much as he's lived his life selfishly. All he wants is to get out of that cage. He doesn't care about the war. He doesn't care about the Nelwins. He's manipulative. And he takes the baby just to get out of that cage. And that he will have to learn to be more community-minded and on the side of good as the story goes on. That was more important to me than really knowing what had got him in the cage. I've forgotten what I made up, and I don't know what those other people wrote, although I do remember the novelist talking to me, but I can't really remember if there was anything in the early script specific to it. I know on the latest Blu-ray was the deleted scene with Sorsha finding her father in Tirislene. And oh, yeah, that's a whole subplot thing. I remember. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Growing up watching the film and always wondering where was uh, Sorsha's father? Like, who in the world would be with Bab Morda? You know, to, <laughs> to, to to you know to have a child. And I always remember seeing the very end of the movie, there was this, this guy standing with Sorsha and Matt Morgan at the end. I go, oh, that must be her father. But, you know, where was he? I don't know. But this deleted scene shows that he was frozen and that there's these hints of that maybe she's not the blood relative of Bavmorda, but yet she may have taken her. Or, I mean, was there any more backstory to that other than just that she had a father that was frozen and then she was somehow distant to him? Yes, I now I'm remembering this and I hadn't thought about it for a long time. I thought there had to be a father somewhere. Where did he go? And the idea of him having been part of a good army at Tiraslin and having a curse put on him. That was part of the story, and it just didn't make it into the movie, and I'd forgotten about that. That's really a, a bit of a flaw in it, but uh, one that was decided in editing. What I can't remember is what decision was made to split uh, Morda and him up. It's in been the, a long time. Well, in, in the defense of the movie, my tiny brain as a kid was like, oh, well, that must be him. And then it was fine with that answer. You know, it, didn't, it didn't need any further explanation because it still worked in my mind. And then a lot of these tiny details, yeah. they get absorbed into all the other material that came out. Like it's all. Oh, yeah. Like the source, the source book and some of these other things, they all, they all have their own version of these backstories. So it's, you can almost take your pick at that point. And all that stuff. I'm, I could have gotten into it, all that, but it didn't really interest me afterwards. The movie did. But I felt like it'd come to the end of the experience for me, and I didn't get involved in that sort of franchising of Willow and the many things that came. I saw stuff that came out, but I let it go. So had you, had you already made the personal decision to move on from it once you felt like you'd done your job and the story was complete? Or were there any talks between you and George and Ron Howard about a possible sequel and if you'd be involved? Or was that didn't interest you at the time? Well, 
a sequel and my being able to write more in that situation with Ron and George, I would have accepted. But that didn't come up. We jumped into Far and Away right after Willow. And that was a great collaboration between me and Ron because we had started it before Willow and it was a rather elaborate movie too. So we got into that and uh, plowed ahead. He'd done another movie in between, Backdraft, I think, came in between. So it was really about just moving forward. And, and also, Willow was successful enough. But in George Lucas's world, Willow was not that successful a movie yeah. because he judges movies by, you know, these billions of dollars they make. So kind of squeaked in there. I thought everything about it was just fantastic as an experience and the fact people went to it and they're still, to this day, there are people like yourselves that are still interested in Willow. That's incredible to me. But as far as making another movie, sometimes people will say, why isn't there a Willow sequel? Maybe one day there will be, but I haven't heard about it. And when I, well, the little inquiring I've done, I've not really seen much interest from Ron and George Lucas yet. So I don't know. They got a lot going on, those guys. <laughs> yeah, they sure do. <laughs> I mean, Disney is at liberty to do whatever with Lucasfilm's properties at this point, so there's always room for more of that. But uh, it would be hard to neglect Willow because it's an, a movie that has aged very, very well, I feel, in spite of being in the shadow of now things like Lord of the Rings. For every massive set piece that Willow doesn't have to those movies like scale of medieval warfare and all that, it has so much more in terms of character that it's enough to latch somebody in. They're always looking for a movie that's already in the public mind. The marketability is something that already has existed, yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, really true of Willow. More now than I ever thought it would have, because at the <laughs> time it was of interest to people, mostly because there were so many George Lucas fans out there. that That was the big draw, and that was why the movie got made, you know, without any real big stars. Because George was the star at that time. I don't know what will happen with Willow. I don't know even who'd be involved in it. I would love to see it, even if I had nothing to do with it, because how that would be reinvented would be interesting, you know, and who would play it and what kind of world it would be. So if Ron Howard called you up and said, Bob, uh, look, I just got on the phone with <laughs> Disney, and for some reason, they're like, let's do more Willow. You want to write something? Let's say it's a film or even like some kind of, I don't know, weird tie-in in a comic book or something. What would your response be? Well, if it was a film and those people, you know, Ron was involved, I would definitely love to be involved in it. Yeah, I would. And if it went into television, anything like that would be interesting. I wouldn't say no to it. <laughs> of course, or maybe I would say no to it. And then Ron would call me back and say, you know, Bob, you might want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a, um, someone did a story online showing some concept artwork for an uh, animated show. Yeah, there were two Willow things that happened after the film that they were they were developing uh, Willow animated series briefly. It never went into, I don't think it ever got a pilot. At least no one knows that it, it did. Mm -hmm. And then there was the, in the mid-90s, there was the trilogy of fantasy novels, story by George Lucas, written by Chris Claremont, that were set in the Willow universe, kind of. Did you have any contact with anyone with Lucasfilm during the production of either of those things? No, that all happened just uh, afterwards. I think it got farmed out and just happened. And I looked at it and thought it was changing into something else. And I wasn't so keen on it, to tell you the truth. Most um, people aren't when far, insofar yeah, as the novel. You're definitely not alone <laughs> in, in, in that sense. Well, the things that I liked about it, I, didn't, I don't think Willow worked too well if it's too earnest. And what I liked about it was the humor and the strangeness of the characters. It's very um, down-to-earth in its own weird way. Yeah. And 
a lot of times writers will say, oh, I saw the movie and it was just so different from what I imagined. But I never thought that. We had such a great collaboration along the way that when a movie was made, it was pretty much what I was expecting it to be because we just talked about it along the way. I mean, I was really lucky that I got to work so intimately with producer and director of that kind and to be involved in it all the way up to being handed a camera. Well, I mean, and you went on to become a film director. You've, you've written and directed your last two productions, Banger Sisters and How to Eat Fried Worms. Yes. And those were good experiences, but I really think that I'm a more of a writer than a director. My personality is such that uh, I'm better off just making things up than trying to tell actors what to do. I loved the challenge of it, and I enjoyed doing both those movies a lot. Particularly, I loved working with children. I'm a little out of it now because I'm interested in other things and not even working so much in film writing as I am just doing other kinds of writing and other things. But back then, the directing was something I wanted to try and I really enjoyed doing it and I was lucky to be able to do it. And I remember thinking that I asked Ron Howard when I was considering the possibility of directing the Banger Sisters because I'd written it as a spec script so for a while there I had a little power when I owned it. And I said, Do you think I could direct the movie? And he said, Oh, I think you could, Bob, because you're not afraid to ask for help. He said, I think that's the key to directing is when you're lost, can't be too proud. You can just say, hey, anybody got an idea? <laughs> and I found that to be real. <laughs> I found that to be true of him. He's great at that. He's great at just saying, oh, I don't know what to do here. Anybody know what I should do? And someone will say, well, well, you know, give a camera idea. Or we worked side by side on Far and Away. And I, I noticed that he was just fearless about that. And uh, I found that to be helpful, too, sometimes. But we're getting away from Willow. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's true. Although I'm, I'm curious, like, what's the Bob Dolman world like now? What, what are you up to these days? Well, I'm writing something at the moment on my own. And I, at times, have thought, what is it I'm doing? Because it's a story that I've had in my mind for a number of years. And sometimes I think it's a movie. Sometimes I think it's a play or a novel. Rather than worry about the form, since I don't have to worry about it, I'm just evolving the characters rather slowly. And I'm older now, and I'm not so career-driven. You know, my son's in the next room making a living for himself, so I don't have to worry about him anymore. And back when I was doing Willow, I had two children, and I was having to provide. Making a living as a writer isn't as important to me anymore, and I do other things. I do, I, I do painting, and I love music, and there's other things I do in my life now that, as well as writing. Well, let me back up and just put it this way. I loved working on... Willow and other projects for the collaboration of it. But I also found that in television and film, you're constantly trying to fit something into a form that will be sold. And even with all the freedom I had in Willow, there was still, you know, a product that we were creating. Now that I'm older, I feel like it would be nice to write and not have to think about those restrictions. The problem with that is that Referring back to what I said before about restraint, it gives me a lot more freedom than maybe is good for me. And if I had a job to write a screenplay for hire right now, I'd be thinking about, well, what do they want and how can I deliver it? I want to be able to write things that are more, I guess you could say, closer to my heart and have the freedom to do that. And that's where I'm at right now. I'm just enjoying that I'm able to do that, seeing where my creative instincts will take me playing back in my mind sounds like maybe a pretentious answer <laughs> that's, what that's what i'm doing <laughs> hey we, we should all be so lucky as to be able to, to freely explore whatever creative whims that we've got in mind without having to worry about you know deadlines and 
pressures from the outside world. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the big one, bills. (laughs) Yeah, it's so true, but it's also true that you can indulge in that a bit too much. And so I don't have any regrets at all for the restrictions that were put on me when I wrote, you know, like even um, with SCTV. And there were, of course, big restrictions, but through those, we were able to create a lot. And that's really true of Willow. So just different chapters of one's life. This is kind of a, a generic style question, but I am curious. What is your favorite scene in the film? It's a great question. The only reason I'm hesitating is because I have a few. <laughs> I really liked the scene. that You mentioned the Blackroot scene where they're by the waterfall. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Probably my favorite moment in the movie. It felt like something I wrote. When I saw it, I thought, oh, that's exactly what I was thinking when I wrote it. Ron captured it so beautifully. And I wasn't there when they shot it. I think that might have been done in New Zealand. I looked at it and thought, oh, that's so great. Because there you see the softening of the men. And yeah, that might be my favorite moment. I guess it it qualifies as a scene. It doesn't have a lot of conflict in it, except for a sweet conflict. You know, it's like, don't feed that baby that. And I like that a lot. I also liked, when I wrote it, the tenth scene where Mad Mardigan gets under the spell and goes in. But when I thought of a year ago, we had uh, the Blu-ray came out, we screened it here in LA. And I thought then that that scene didn't appeal to me anymore. I didn't like the way I wrote it, but I did when I wrote it. When I looked at it, I wished that Sorsha's lines would have been stronger. Instead, she's pulled in and she says all these things that are... And she doesn't seem very strong as a woman in the scene. I thought she was when I originally wrote it. But when I wrote it, I thought, oh, this scene's great. It, it surprised me. And I liked it better when they get on the horse afterwards. It's like when two people have, you know, they've had a wonderful romantic night and the next day the guy's kind of forgotten about it. Right. Since <laughs> the spell right up. And then when she jumps off the horse, she's so strong then. I thought, this is more like it. She gets off the horse. She, she does a great job, that actress, making that character tough. And uh, that was one of my favorite scenes where she's just so mad at him. That was good. You know, so mad at him. And he's like, well, it's like a stupid guy, right? Well, I said that. Oh, I didn't mean that. I was just like. (laughs) She's like, what happened to those fish? Well, it went away. (laughs) It went away. (laughs) Those human moments are more interesting to me than the big scenes where there's dragons or trolls or other big event things is when the movie quiets down to a human moment that I like it. In the long run after like, you know, growing up with it, those are the scenes that kind of have the most lasting quality. They're they're more quotable and it makes me all the more curious what the scissor draft looked like because you said it had more of those scenes of just the characters just hanging out and talking. Oh, well, I just let them go longer those scenes. Yes. I thought, mm. okay, I'm going to do a draft where if I'm on a roll, I'm just going to keep going. And <laughs> that's where I wrote that there's a big, long sequence. It costs a million bucks, I think, to shoot, and they took it out of the movie, which is where they go over to the island where Roselle has been exiled. And in that scissors draft, I wrote this long description of going over in a boat and being attacked by this underwater creature. And they shot it. They shot it in a tank in London. And Warwick and, almost drowned, I heard, shooting it. Oh, so you know about it. I think they put the scene, did they put it on the Blu-ray? I think they, so. They did, and man, it was an incredible day. I'd been, after hearing about that scene for years, thought it just didn't exist anymore. Yeah, or the footage was it, lost it was, somewhere. It was they, amazing to see it, though I guess it didn't pull off as well as anyone had hoped, but just that it still existed was a thrill to see it. Yeah. When I wrote it, George and Ron were really excited, 
And it was part of that draft. They said, oh my God, this is great. This is going to be so, this is just what we want in this movie, this great visual. And then they shot it. And the decision to cut it out was so big because it was an elaborate expense. And what they recognized in the editing room when they'd shot it was something that I wish I had thought about when I was writing it. I would have saved them all that bother. Because they were right. You can put something in a movie that creates all kinds of visual stuff. But if it doesn't advance the story, it's not really worth much. And all that did was create this little episode and it didn't make a difference to the story. You could just cut to the island if you had to. And all that wound up being boring, not because it was boring to look at, but boring because it was stalling the story. So that was a huge choice that had to be made. And I can remember asking George, because you know, I didn't know very much about this, and I said, George, when you spend all that money on a scene, don't you want to put it in the movie because it went to all that work? And he said, but if it's going to hurt the movie, it's got to go. It doesn't matter what you spent on it. It matters what money you're going to make on the movie down the road. You don't want something to hurt it. And he said, I think the scene was hurting the movie. So out it went. <laughs> was there any scene while you were writing it that was like really difficult, that draft after draft, it was just this one thing that seemed uncrackable? I had a lot of difficulty with the Tiraz lean battle because there were too many things going on. And we wanted all those things to be going on. But I found it hard to figure it out without losing track of the character. And so Mad Mardigan runs in and puts on the armor and he finds back there and he goes out and he, they're flinging the tar and their trolls are running under the bridge and the dragon comes out of nothing. And it's just like, there's so much goes on in that scene. And that's where I said to George, you said you were going to leave the dragons to you. I don't even know where anything is. <laughs> I, can't, it's, I can't keep track of this. This is before we shot it. This is just imagining it. And George had this idea that everything should be piled in on this scene. Like, oh, this is going to be great. We have this, 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 this. Let's try to get it all in. So I said, I don't know how to write it. I, I mean, I've got dialogue, but I don't know where to put it. And I'm a little lost. And I, I've tried it. And it's frustrating. And how can I, who can help me? And uh, he said, okay, I'm going to put you in a room over at ILM. And just work with the storyboard guys. And man, that was fun. Because I'd say, okay, <laughs> Willow's on a bridge, I think. <laughs> and there's a dragon, there's a dragon that's going to come out of a moat that, as weird as it sounds, is inside the castle. And Matt Mardig is over here. And I don't know where anything is. And this guy's all just drawing. And they say, how about this? And I say, oh, thank you. And I'd run back to the hotel that night and write in the dialogue following the pictures. <laughs> and, and I wound up having a script that followed the pictures. And then I'd run back in the next day and say, okay, here's what I wrote. And they said, oh, that's great. Now we know this is going to happen, this happened, And then they'd write it again. And we'd, we'd go back and forth, drawing and writing and getting all that stuff figured out. And that helped me. But that was the most difficult just because of the logistics of it. And I didn't like the fact that all this battle was going on and that there was no character development in that scene. It was just a lot of action. I really loved the moment where... Willow comes out, he's covered in blood, and he's lost the baby. He's trying to fight the trolls, and he just thinks he's out of his league. And Mad Mardigan says, Willow! And he looks at him and says, there were too many of them, Mad Mardigan. And 
the way he says it, he, the actor says of them, which never would I have written, right? It's like, there's too many of them. But he writes, there's too many of them, Mad Mardigan. And that stayed in the movie. And I loved it so much because it was this great little beat of vulnerability in the middle of all this crazy ass action. That was the line that I wrote, but it came across the way Ron filmed it and had the blood coming down his face. It was great. It saved it for me. And it was also hard writing the battle at the end, too, with them. Um, God, they're fighting down in the rain and it's upstairs, the baby. <laughs> but you know, that's the great thing about George Lucas and maybe why Star Wars was so successful. He really has an amazing ability to do lateral thinking because he would just say, oh, no, we can do that. We can do that. He would just kept saying, you can do it. You can do it. And for instance, he said, okay, we need a two-headed monster inside the castle and there's a moat. And I went back and thinking, this doesn't make any sense to me. There's a moat. The moat's around the castle. What? I, I don't get it. I don't get it. So I said to George, this doesn't work. You can't have a moat around the dragons. The dragon's inside. And George looked at me and said, there's a moat inside the castle. And I said to him, you know what? You got a really weird brain. That <laughs> I said, I couldn't see that, George. It's so simple. He said, well, why should there only be a moat outside? I said, because that's how... <laughs> That's what a moat is. <laughs> so, not in this movie. And it was great. So I said, okay, fine. From that point on, I had no problem with the moat. <laughs> oh, man. It was so fun getting in those conversations. But he would just say, yeah, pile it on. In fact, he said to me one day, Bob, would you make sure that every scene you write has six things in it? And I said, six? What are those six things? And then I'm not sure if it was five or six, but I'll try to remember them now. He said, well, make sure that every scene's got some humor in it. Make sure there's conflict in every scene. Make sure we learn more about the character, no matter what. Make sure that the theme is touched on. And he wanted the plot to move forward. It was, of course, obvious. But sometimes writers lose sight of that, which is why the water scene didn't stay in the movie. Those kinds of things. He taught me a lot about writing. And that was one I thought, yeah, see if I can do this. And I would try to get those things into every scene. Sometimes I didn't succeed at it, but I tried. And he was always just demanding more for each scene. Like he wanted as much in the movie as he could. Bang for his buck. <laughs> he wanted that. In fact, one time he said, Bob, we're starting to shoot now, right? We're in England. And he said, Bob, there's two scenes here at the beginning. Can you just make them one scene? And I said, well, George, no, I can't because they take place at two different times. He says, yeah, but they're in the same location. I said, well, I know, but it's the next day. Yeah, I know, but if these guys on this crew, if they think it's all one scene, they'll shoot it in one scene. If they think it's two scenes, they'll take another day. So just put one heading, and we'll just shoot the whole thing. It's all happening in the same location. <laughs> well, it worked. I was sick to my stomach because I was taking out the middle heading, you know, and just taking it out and kind of fooling the crew. But in the end, it actually, it actually worked. They just said, oh, your next setup. And they just kept rolling with it, and the scene was done. <laughs> he was a bit sneaky in that way, I guess. He's, he's a genius all, for a reason. You, <laughs> it's true, right? And I say all this was with complete admiration. It was just blowing my mind right, left, and center, though. <laughs> There's a, a lot of transformation sequences in Willow. The soldiers getting turned into pigs, of course, everything that happens with Finn Rizel, the instruments kind of getting turned into creatures during the, the ceremony at the very end. Ooh, yeah, that's really weird. Right? <laughs> that wasn't in the script. That was some 
I don't know. I don't know if that was Ron Howard's idea or what, but you get to a point where people are having a lot of fun with the back then kind of primitive special effects. Those sequences, I mean, any transformation sequence in film, especially at that time, was super challenging. And this one had a ton of them. And in the the development of these sequences that are extremely memorable, but special effects heavy, like when you were developing it, where did that kind of fall in? Was it simply that themes of transformation were fascinating because they're so in line with magic and things that are otherworldly? Or was it a request of like, well, here's some special effects stuff we can do right now. Let's try to include that. There may be a bit of that, but I think we had a lot of integrity about using transformation and magic as part of the story and the theme. I know it was important to me, and I can see that it was important to Ron in the way he filmed it. There's so much about the story that has to do with perception, how people are seen. The Nelwins in their village get out into the world, and suddenly they're pecks. They look down upon, and people seem like giants. But when the brownies come into the movie, suddenly the pecks become giants. And so without any transformation of, of a magic kind, the change of perspective creates a feeling of transformation. I was a big person a minute ago. Now I'm a little person only because the perspective has changed. So transformation happens on that level without any special magic. It's the way we feel when we move from place to place in the world. And I I love that that runs through it. And the brownies coming into the movie which weren't there at the beginning. They came along, and I forget how it happened with the brownies. In a story session, we thought we'd put these brownies in and have another level of size. And that worked really well. As primitive as the special effects are in Willow with the brownies, at the time, they were state-of-the-art. They were ahead of everything. Nobody had ever shot live action in a movie before. Live action imposed on other live action with a moving camera. They'd done it in Roger Rabbit and Willow. They were both experimenting with that at the same time, both movies. In fact, Willow and Roger Rabbit, the production was sending stuff back and forth <laughs> to help each other. I remember we got a thing. We all ran out and said, oh, they've sent over a scene with Roger Rabbit falling down some stairs and camera moves with him. And we looked at it and thought, oh, that's pretty incredible. And they were saying, oh, here's how we did it. And then the brownies had to be invented for the sake of Willow. and. uh that was going on while we were shooting, because I remember being in a car coming back from the set with George Lucas and saying, how are you going to do those brownies, George? <laughs> and he said, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And, and, and I said, well, <laughs> since we're already shooting, are you worried about it? And he said, well, the thing is, when you create a problem like this and you're making a movie, you've got to solve it. And they're over there working on it. They'll solve it. <laughs> so I said, okay, great. We were in England, they were at ILM in San Rafael, and they were working on it, and they got it to the best they could. But a lot of that stuff hadn't been done before, so when people saw it, they were blown away. Now you look at it, there's so many amazing CGI effects now that you can't, you know, you don't, you don't even notice them. But back then, now you look at it, you say, well, oh, I see how they, they it looks kind of weird. But back <laughs> then, it was, it was new, and it was uh, exciting. So since the movie was about not, just having magic as a tool or a weapon, but something that exists in the universe that we are trying to get. That's one of the things I like most about Willow uh, thematically is that Willow and Mad Mardigan, and they're looking for power. The masculine in the movie is seeking power in this matriarchal world. And 
one of its powers is that you can change things. You can make something transform. And Willow wants to be a magician. Mad Mardigan wants to be a great swordsman. Both of them want the power that will give. Even with Willow, it goes back to when he's with the High Alduin and he wants to be part of that. He wants power. And the whole movie is about trying to get power. And the transformation is a huge part of the theme. And I will take some credit for that because I made the decision and proposed it that the world be a female world. You don't see too many movies where that's the case in the history of all movies ever made. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the men are striving for power. And guess what? They don't get it. They get something. But at the end of the movie, the feminine is still on the throne. It's not like, you know, most movies where there's a female protagonist. In the end, she's got a husband. In the end, there's, some, there's a male world that she's now part of. But rarely do you see a world that stays in the realm of the matriarchy. And that was a big theme. So in there were these transformations. And the most important one is Finn Rizal, because she's been transformed into different things. And when they find her, she's some kind of possum. And she turns into a bird and a goat and all that. And she's trying to get out of this trap. And Willow doesn't have the skills. So well, that's part of the story there. And I think it's one of the coolest sequences in terms of invention that the male lead in the story, the male hero, can't summon enough power to transform the good queen back into herself. It's just really interesting to me anyway. Viewing Willow with gender theory, I, for some reason, had never even remotely crossed my mind. But like, no, you're yeah, right. Like this is saying, completely like, unique. As you're explaining it, I'm starting to look back on the film in my mind's eye and I'm just seeing... Every male character that wants something, there's already a female character who's already considered a master at it. Even in the case of Mad Morgan, he wants to be a great swordsman and a great soldier. There's Sorsha. She's already got it. Like, she has the job that Mad Morgan ideally would want. And, like, with Willow, yeah. I mean, there's, there's not even just Finn Rizel. There's Bath Morda, but there's also Shalindria, the, the fairy yeah. queen. Like, there's all these levels above him, and they're all held by women in, in every respect. Yeah, that was very deliberate. And to this day, I think it's the most revolutionary thing about Willow. The most interesting thing about it is that this is a female world in which men are less than. And when it was reviewed, someone told me this. I don't really have firsthand proof of it. But I heard that the breakdown was that male critics had more trouble with it than female. <laughs> <laughs> so and it's funny. We wrote it for these 12-year-old boys, but it was... A chick flick in the end. <laughs> I've said that in interviews before. I said, we wrote a chick flick. We didn't really <laughs> sit down to write one, but we did. So I'll tell you one more story that may be my favorite Willow story. At the time we were working on the script, I would go up to Skywalker Ranch. And at this time, Joseph Campbell had done some interviews up there. And they became pretty well known because they were done toward the end of his life. They filmed them up at Skywalker Ranch. It's a Power of Myth series with Bill Moyers, I believe. I think that's probably it. And Lucas and Joseph Campbell had become friends, and Campbell was a great supporter of Star Wars. So I said to George one day, God, I can't believe that you are friends with Joseph Campbell. That's amazing. I'd give anything to meet that guy. Well, George never told you anything of an emotional nature if he could help it. And he just said to me, like that, just grunted. (laughs) And I thought, oh, I guess I shouldn't ask that. And often with George, you would ask him things, and sometimes he would just give you this little, "Mm," and then you think, oh, shouldn't have asked that question. That was a good example. 
So now we go by, and weeks, weeks, weeks go by. And then one day, we're working on the script, and Ron's up there. We're between drafts. We've gone quite far into it, and we're getting close to production. They're already training the death dogs over in England. And George says, um, dinner's at my house tonight. And I said, oh, oh, okay. What's going on? He said, well, you and Ron are coming over and uh, Joe Campbell. I said, are you kidding? It was just like, it made me almost cry because he just like remembered, right? And he <laughs> stays at dinner. So I go over and Joseph Campbell was there with his wife, Jean. And they were just standing in the living room and having a glass of wine or something. And we were getting ready for dinner. And <laughs> I was so excited. I was nervous. And I got introduced to him and Ron and we were, Ron and I were blown away. We just couldn't believe it. So we had made small talk and actually it wasn't small talk. I, mean, I can remember some of the conversation. Everything was pretty interesting. And then we sat down to dinner and we had dinner. And then when dinner was finished, Joseph Campbell, who then was maybe 80 and not long after that, he would die. And his wife, Jean, who was older as well, had been a dancer in her youth. And Campbell says, after we've talked about all kinds, we talked about James Joyce, we talked about where he has started to get interested in myth, I mean, all these amazing things, things I wanted to ask him. And he said, tell us the story of Willow. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and Ron and George and I looked at each other, and we didn't quite know what he meant. And he said, Gene and I want to hear the whole story. There they were, this elderly couple at the table. And Ron and George and I, sort of taking turns as we would go, told the story of Willow over two hours. These two people didn't move. They didn't move. They listened to everything like they were watching a movie. It gave us all kinds of information about the script, you can imagine, because having to tell it in detail meant we would feel little stress points, little weak points, little places where, oh, this could be better. Or we'd tell things that we hadn't written in the script because they started to come to us. We finished. And Campbell talked about it and talked about it in the way that only he could. He talked about the mythical references that he knew and where this was moving and how this had happened and what this archetype was. I mean, it was just amazing. It was amazing. We were like, whoa, really, like three guys making a movie are listening to this guy. And his wife sat quietly. And then she spoke up and she said, I love the moment when Roselle finally turns back into a woman and she's old. She says, that's exactly what it's like. You look at yourself and you think, has it really been this long? In other words, it's surreal to observe that your life has gone by. It's surreal that once you were young and now you're old. And we went away, Ron and I drove back and he said, oh, that's so amazing because it makes you realize that transformation is something that's not even magical. It's just what happens. Life is transformation. We're transformed just by living. And I got to get that into the movie somehow. And Ron shot it that way. If you look at when Roselle finally comes, you know, there's a peacock and a turtle and all that stuff. And then the old woman comes and she's naked and they put the blanket on her. And when I saw how he shot it and her looking at her hand, just like Dean Campbell, 
has it really been this long? And then, of course, Rizal then, come on, Willow, let's get on with it. And then off they go, and they're on to the adventure of uh, defeating Bavmorda. And from then on, it's really third act stuff. But that moment is one of the best moments in the movie, and I can't really take credit for it except I'd written that she's an old woman. That was something that I had come up with because I thought, well, what happens? She's been here for all these years. So we liked that she was old and that we had to cast an elderly actress to play it instead of, you know, suddenly in a fairy tale would be a beautiful woman, right? It would be Sherlindria type. Mm -hmm. But instead, it's this old woman, way more interesting. The curse that she was under was horrific. It's not only was she turned into an animal, she aged inside those animals. And the real deep realization of that moment came when Jean Campbell looked at her hand. Pretty great. Yeah. Jeez, Bob, that's, that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> My jaw is on the floor because I, I, for I one, I'm, a, I'm a, obviously I'm a fan of Willow, but two, I'm also a huge Joseph Campbell fan. And I've honestly always wondered if he had seen the film, what would he have said about it? So you was telling the yeah. story of how you told him the story. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm losing my mind over here. That's amazing. That's awesome. It was one of the most amazing experiences I've had. Well, in my life, I guess, really. But certainly in the making of Willow, that was a night I'll never forget. And I'll never have anything but the fondest feelings for George Lucas for pulling that together just because I had said to him, I'd like to meet Joseph Campbell one day. That was great. That's incredible. Talk about a perk. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how we're going to top that. No, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I really love talking to you guys about all this. Oh my god, yes, yeah. Bob. This has been amazing. Like, there's so many pieces of story of making this movie that we just didn't know. Oh, uh, good, good. You can probably tell it's all still really vivid for me. What happened? I was writing a movie for the first time. Come from TV. I was in this huge world where suddenly I'm with George Lucas and meeting Joseph Campbell. I mean, I, it, was a, it was just like a dream. It still seems like a dream. Yeah, I feel wow. so lucky to have just been, been a part of it. In turn, Willow has influenced other filmmakers. I mean, Dave Filoni working on The Clone Wars and, and Star, Star Wars, Wars Rebels. Rebels. He's dropping references to Willow in several of the episodes that they've done. So it's this thing that as fans, we keep seeing references and seeing like did they did they know that they're referencing willow like is this there, there's this connection happening in a recent episode of the cartoon network series regular show they actually had a halloween episode and that's right yeah yeah all the characters dressed up as different pop culture icons and one of the characters i'll be damned if he wasn't willow f good oh, wow yeah great complete, the whole vest and everything like it's all and he's and he, he's holding a twig that's meant to be shalindria's one yeah yeah as, as i'm telling you it's like uh. it's, it permeates man I love Willow fans. I can't believe how many of you guys included, of course. There's just so many people. Well, oh, here's a great closing story. So this, I was in Toronto two weeks ago. I come back through U.S. Customs. You have to clear it in Toronto. So I'm coming down. I'm, I'm, I was born in Canada, so I got these papers and all this I have to go through. And I get to the immigration guy, and he looks at my thing. He says, so uh, where do you live? I live in Los Angeles. Really? What do you do there? I thought, oh, man, what do I have to do? What, how can I just get through and get on the airplane? I said, well, I, I, you know, I've worked in the entertainment business. Really? How, <laughs> what have you done? I said, well, this is Homeland Security, okay? He says, what have you done? I said, well, what have I done? I, I, and I'm looking at the guy. I'm thinking, hmm, this guy looks like he's about, hmm, I'll bet he was about 12 years old when Willow came out. <laughs> 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 so, I say to him, well, 
You may have heard about a movie that I wrote the screenplay for. It's called Willow. <laughs> he says to me, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no. He says, you, wait, wait, hold on. You, <laughs> so he's telling me, and then he, he's, I'm having there, I'm holding people up. He, he's asking me questions like you guys are asking me. And I'm trying to answer them quickly so I can get going and catch my plane. <laughs> and finally he says, well, you know, this is just so cool. I mean, that was one of my favorite movies. I just can't believe that you, you wrote it. That's really, I'm just amazed. And there's this thing you have to do when you're coming down through Canada, after all the security stuff that's gone on the last 15 years, they fingerprint you and they take your picture. And I said, look, I should really get going to my plane. You, know, you want me to do the fingerprint now? And he says, oh, don't worry about it. Just go. Just go, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Did I just breach <laughs> Homeland Security because I wrote Willow? <laughs> <laughs> that was my last Willow thing. That was only about three weeks ago. <laughs> Amazing. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, guys, so... Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't even... I, I can't even. It was That was amazing. Yeah. I, I honestly don't really know what to say on top of that. Just it was amazing stories, insight into how, how they made the film. It's, it's everything I wanted to hear. I, it, things I didn't even know I wanted. We knew so many stories behind the scenes of Willow, but there was yet so much more. Yeah, but the, but the, it, it painted a through line through all these like little stories about like, you know, especially like with the scene on, with the boat and the fish monster tying this in with you know why did this get cut and was it for time and everything else and just like the the thought process on why they did it and how it was i don't know it was it's cleared up so many little mysteries the joseph campbell story yeah i'm still like floored by that that's that was amazing and yet this interview has told us that as we predicted there's still so much more now we know definitively that between all the people who worked on the willow property following the film's production they have another part of the story yeah, of Willow. There's, there's a whole other chapter there, yeah. Instead of it all coming from this one source, or source book, rather, it's actually kind of comforting to know that the movie was the source. Yeah. Like, it had a small idea, grew into the movie that we love, and now that movie is the source yeah. of all this extra stuff. Yeah, after the movie was done, someone at Lucasfilm compiled it into, and this is me just hypothesizing, but I feel as though there's no way that Waylon Drew's novel and uh, Alan Varney's source book could have had so many similarities without them both pulling from a similar source. Mm -hmm. So I imagine someone at Lucasfilm created a story Bible based on the content of the film. A collection of probably all the art and stuff that they did for it, yeah. It makes yeah. sense. And, and maybe there was either one of the two of them was hired on to actually do that world-building creation so that there was a definitive story for the background of Mad Mardigan yeah. and, and other things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long All Willow journey this episode, but we should mention that Willow Watch is but a segment of State of the Empire, our Star Wars show. We're going to keep questing for more info on the history and world of Willow, as well as signs that there could be more Willow someday, every episode in our regular Willow Watch segments, as well as in future All Willow Watch specials. And I really do believe we've got a chance of seeing something new with Willow. If Disney truly wants it, Willow could be their Lord of the Rings. Like, yeah. if, if they felt like that was something they needed, that they were lacking, well, now they have a Lord of the Rings with Lucas's brand on it, and... They didn't get Harry Potter, they got Star Wars. Yeah. They didn't get Lord of the Rings. They can get Willow. So if you look at well, they have a, it, they don't have to get it. They already have it. It's it's available to them, and it's not impossible to think that based on how flexible Marvel is with embracing different characters and different periods of time within Star Wars, 
they could take a chance on Willow as a comic book thing. It, it, it could sure. happen in a bunch of different ways. Like, I think that we will see a Willow thing, an official Willow thing, not too far from now. We just don't, won't know what it's going to be. And the more we talk about Willow, the more you guys listening talk about Willow and share Willow. Willow continues to build as a cultural zeitgeist. There's no reason that uh, the executives won't take notice and think, you know, a Willow sequel isn't, you know, isn't that bad. We know that Warwick Davis, every chance he gets, mentions Willow 2. He was talking about Willow 2 and 3 during interviews just following the production wrapping of the yeah. first film. He even put it into... Um, uh, Life's Too Short. Yeah, Life's Too Short yeah. with, uh, with him and Val Kilmer. Yeah. Like, him and Val Kilmer were doing jokes about Willow 2 and 3. Like, it was, the time's right, that's what yeah. I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is all about getting it out there in the zeitgeist. And after that interview with Bob Dolman, it, it sounds perfect for just the various mediums, but even like a cartoon series that is once again aimed at that same demographic but still introducing people to the idea of like different gender roles and like it works today I, i'm i'm just shocked that it never occurred to me but no, the, yeah the willow is is so different from all the films you know, of its time but it's, and but it's so subtle you never even thought about no, it no because like, that's it's, the it's beauty an, it's of an it. equal film yeah and it still seeps into your subconscious though that like it really does change the way you think about things because the fact that i didn't think there was anything wrong with that tells me that it sort of transcends what societal standards are. You know, people online get pissy about, like, Mad Max Fury Road. People saying that Mad Max is a feminist right. uh, piece of art. Right, right. And I it's mean, like, and you can clearly Willow is. No, for real. Yeah, that's, like, that's the shocking thing, was that it's like, dude, this is... This is old hat. Like, you know, this is we've 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 already done this. Yep. It's amazing because even though Bob was saying, like, you know, the world itself was a was a matriarchy, which thereby creates a polarizing element of it. It's a displacement of power. It's either patriarchy or matriarchy, and that this world is a matriarchy and that all the male characters want what the female characters have, whereas that in its own right is still very different and still makes it a, a feminist body of work. In the way it's personified, that equality is almost all hedging towards a certain degree of balance. Willow becomes a great sorcerer, Mad Mardigan becomes a respected warrior, and though he's still serving a queen, his status is uplifted in some way, so that it, it's really does aim more towards like a certain amount of equality by the end of it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really just, I mean, fascinating. Like it's, it's time to deconstruct Willow, I yes. guess. <laughs> yes. And in that all that, man, I learned so much about George Lucas as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so nice to hear that he was so trusting of not just Bob, but of like everyone to be like, oh, you know, the, vi the visual effects guys, they'll figure that out. Like he, he sounds like a guy who had a hard time saying no. Everyone has this take on him of being kind of, you know, oh, just, uh, you know, whatever, like very kind of little lack of emotion. But he seems to be very encouraging to people that he believes in. Yeah. Which, you know, it's so easy. You hear horror stories of other creative people just putting other people down or telling. I don't know. It was, it's just a nice, fresh perspective, you know, on old Uncle George. <laughs> Especially when there's, there was so much negativity on him for such a long time. With perspectives like Bob's working on this, it's easy to see, like, you know, here's what really worked about George Lucas's methods of storytelling. Mm -hmm. Here's where he really shone. Here's why he reached visionary status. And then wherever things went wrong with the creation of the prequels, that seems like it was more him and his own personal demons mm -hmm. because he kind of it seems like he stopped collaborating in a way. You could say that. Yeah. But that's story, that, that's for a whole for other episode. Time. Yeah. 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 But man, what an insight. Yeah. Again, thanks to Bob Dolman. This is like we finally we fu we've done it, guys. A an entire episode of nothing but Willow Watch. We've been joking about this for years. Did never think it would actually happen, and uh, now that it has, you got to believe in yourself, yeah, Doug. I, I, I do. I don't know. It's I. I should never have doubted it. <laughs> so next up, Alan Varney and Chris Claremont. Watch out. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I believe it's going to happen now. I mean, How we, could it not? We've already spoken to both of them on the matter. So uh, yeah. so it's it's time to to seal our fate and get involved and. 
get their versions of the story of of Willow and those two very different phases of it existing as a franchise. Mm. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, we need your help. Rate and review State of the Empire on iTunes. Rating and reviewing is the best way to get a show seen on iTunes. It's easy to do. Just head over to iTunes and give us a rating. And if you want, you can also tell people what you like about the show. And if you're feeling extra generous, please share this episode with friends on social networks. And also, don't be shy. Keep the discussion going with us. If you're into Willow Watch, if you got insights about Willow, anything you want to share, any memories you want to share, let's keep the flame lit. Let's keep the Willow passion alive. Spread it out there like a virus. Let everybody know that you love Willow and we will make that Willow sequel happen, guys. Some kind of Willow thing is going to happen. Oh, you want, you want enough, Willow? Enough positive vibes, I think it can happen. Yeah. It's the direction the bird is flying. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Willow Watch. Bye, I'm Cap. Bye, I'm Doug. Bye, I'm Matt. State of the Empire is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida at Nerdy Show Studios, home of the Nerdy Show Network, geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. Discover more at nerdyshow.com. Our theme song, Maximum Rebo, was written and performed by Zantilla. Find more awesome tracks at zantilla.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our Bothan pals in the Star Wars Spoilers Facebook group, the Nerdy Show Network Patreon backers, and Ethna, the midwife who hurried the sacred princess away from certain doom. As Finn Rizel once wrote of her, Though Bavmoda built mountains and toppled kingdoms, it was this old woman, with swollen joints and tattered robes, whose selflessness brought about the evil queen's destruction. Her greatness humbles me. Consequence Podcast Network. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.